We have reached the stroke of noon, uh, and I'm going to start uh, uh, as people come in, because what I say is not important. What he says is important, so I'll spend a couple minutes till we get the uh, room more fully populated. So uh, I have my instructions. I welcome everybody in the room and those uh, watching remotely. Uh, next, I guess it says to introduce Jeff. I think before I do that, I'm going to read the. Co I'm going to violate the order, and I'm going to read the conflict of interest. The first one says Dr. Luke does not have any financial interests. That's difficult to believe, and I, so I'd like to modify that, that he doesn't have any financial interests that impact his presentation today. Uh, I, he's an intelligent man. I can't believe he has no financial interests. Or maybe we don't pay you. <laughs> uh, he does not intend to discuss off-label or investigational use of a product or service, and he is not receiving direct payments from a commercial entity with respect to this activity. And for CME credit, please use the activity code displayed outside the room after the presentation. So uh, let me say just a word or two about Jeff. Uh, so he's been here for two years has done a remarkable amount of things and has been remarkably impressive in those two years. Uh, his background is he, his bachelor's was in engineering and mathematics from Wyoming and a master's in electrical engineering from Wyoming and a PhD in electrical engineering uh, at Austin uh, in 2013 and uh, he did something between 2013 and 2015 that I don't have. Uh, uh, but he's uh, succeeded from peer review. He got a DOD, Breast Cancer Breakthrough Award, in 2014 for the clinical translation of photoacoustic imaging. And he's gotten an R21 funded uh, for the development of super resolution ultrasound imaging. Well, these are all words for those of you that aren't in engineering uh, that don't mean too much to us. What he's doing is in this remarkable new field using photoacoustic uh, and, and optical techniques of what they call theranostics. That is where you use an agent that both affects the tumor and images it. So this is a remarkable, very important area of development. So you can see what you're doing. And uh, I have the pleasure of collaborating with Jeff where we're trying to deliver oxygen and then measure it. Uh, and he's imaging it and we're measuring it and it's a fantastic breakthrough. So without other words, uh, Jeff, I'll turn, the, uh, turn it over to you. Okay. Thank you for the very kind introduction. Um, so, I'm Jeff Luke. I'm over at the Thayer School. And today I'll be talking to you about some of our more translational aspects that we're doing in our lab. Um, nothing is yet in patients, but we hope to be there uh, within a year's time from now. So we're, we're moving that direction quickly. Um, I have nothing to disclose that's relevant to this talk. Um, so our lab is over in the uh, 
Borwell Building, not Borwell, sorry, uh, Williamson Building. And we're on the top floor there with all the other engineering uh, faculty in, the, in that same open lab space. And generally our lab is focused on three main aspects, nanotechnology, imaging, and uh, applying those to some biological or biomedical applications. And so here's the members of our lab. We have four PhD students, postdoc, and uh, one undergrad working with us right now. So pretty good sized group, and they're all going really well on each of their own projects. So what you'll see here is a lot of what they've contributed so far. Um, first, I'd like to talk big picture. How, where does imaging fit in with medicine and kind of give you a big picture overview and then where we fit in in our lab. MRI is a great workhorse in the clinic. It's able to go across a wide range of scales. So on this vertical scale, we have basically your spatial resolution. How, how big of things can you image? And with MRI, you can go whole body all the way down, depending on your magnet, down to, you know, uh, tissue level. Uh, things that you're imaging, and it goes across this wide range of informational spectrum, uh, which I separate into morphological or anatomical, uh, functional, and molecular. So you can get a wide range of information with MRI. The downside is that it's expensive and time-consuming. X-ray CT is also commonly used in the clinic, but this provides much more anatomical features, and it's much more difficult to get functional or molecular and cellular information but it's oftentimes coupled with uh, nuclear medicine, which gives very excellent molecular functional information with the administration of contrast agents, but very little in the terms of anatomical information. So these two are very nice synergistic modalities. Ultrasound is much more of a point of care uh, type of approach and because it's inexpensive and uh, real time. And you get nice anatomical and some functional information like blood flow as well. The downside is that your penetration depth is limited. You can't do whole body imaging. You can't go through things like bone and lung. And you also uh, have to deal with things like speckle and other things like that. So it's not as, um, as versatile, perhaps, as some of the other imaging modalities. More recently, uh, optical has been making its way into the clinic. For example, OCT, optical coherence tomography, which has a big footprint now in ophthalmology. And here you get a lot of really great high-resolution anatomical information. For example, imaging single cones and uh, rods in the retina. Um, in addition, there's also uh, fluorescence and bioluminescence imaging, which are used more commonly in the preclinical domain, though some in the, in the clinical domain. And this, here you can have targeted contrast agents to get very molecular, very specific molecular information. And optical microscopy, of course, is a great way to get very high resolution images of what's going on inside cells. So I'm starting from ultrasound. Our lab is starting from ultrasound as our platform. And what we're looking to do is really expand the footprint that ultrasound can have. And we believe that by adding light and nanotechnology to this core uh, technology of ultrasound, we can expand where we're able to image. We can increase the resolution, improve the resolution to get down close to single cell resolution, and then we can also begin getting some molecular information. And so this, we hope, will take this already inexpensive and ubiquitous technology and really expand its capabilities to, to be much more versatile in the clinic. Now, in general, how can we, as engineers, impact patient care? Well, we can either do this on the preclinical side or the clinical side. 
On the preclinical side, we could use develop imaging techniques just to gain a basic understanding of what's going on in disease. Um, so this could be a systems level understanding or a molecular understanding, you know. So we could develop new imaging techniques tailored specifically for small animals to understand how disease progresses. And then it can also be used to evaluate new molecular targets. That's a, there's a big gap between developing a new molecule and actually a, implementing it in patients. And we hope that with new imaging technologies, we can uh, help streamline this gap a little bit. And then in the preclinical realm, we can develop and test tools that are ultimately meant for, meant for the clinic. And once we take it to the clinic, we want to detect disease non-invasively, um, or even with the advent of personalized medicine, very precisely characterize this disease to identify uh, targeted therapeutics that might be available. And in addition, imaging also plays a crucial role in uh, intervention guidance. So for example, fluorescence-guided brain surgery is something that's some, so there's some very great work going on that here. And then evaluation of therapeutic response. So once we administer a therapy, we want to know if it's working. And so this is another way that imaging can make an impact in the clinic. In this talk, I'm going to focus right on this line that straddles preclinical and clinical. Right now, all of our work is here in the preclinical, yet we're moving to the clinical domain, hopefully quickly. Um, so as I'm sure everybody in this room knows, spread of cancer cells will basically take one of two paths through the body, either the circulatory system or the lymphatic system. Um, we've been focused more on the lymphatic system, and that's because oftentimes the primary tumor will first metastasize to uh, the nearest or the closest draining lymph node known as the sentinel lymph node. And so here's some examples, some mouse histology, um, where you have a normal lymph node, and then these nodules right here are micrometastases that have developed in uh, the lymph node of a mouse. So because it's a common first stop for cancer cells, oftentimes the first question a physician will ask is, what is the state of those lymph nodes? Is, has the cancer spread from the primary tumor to the regional lymph nodes? And the way to answer this question, uh, the most common way to answer this question is through the sentinel lymph node biopsy. Here, a dye and possibly a radioactive tracer is injected paratumorally and allowed to drain through the lymphatic system, at which point uh, the surgeon cuts open the area around the lymph nodes and surgically removes the lymph node and sends it off to uh, pathology to basically identify the presence of metastases. And this procedure alone has proven to be effective, accurate, and it does increase the survival rate, and so that's why it's been widely adopted. However, it often exposes the patient to ionizing in, uh, radiation. It's invasive. It can lead to side effects such as nerve damage and lymphedema. And the results can take a week or even more to, to get back to the patient, which leads to some additional anxiety. And it requires multiple specialists and coordination among them. And so there's a growing consensus in the imaging field that we can make a real impact in this, uh, in this procedure. And I'm not the first to come along and think this. It's a variety of imaging modalities have, have, just, have tried to tackle this procedure. PET imaging is nice because it's whole body. Um, but it is ionizing, and it has relatively low sensitivity to small metastases. So with PET imaging, you can inject a tracer such as FDG and find uh, small millimeter-sized metastases or so within the body, including the lymph node. Um, MRI has also been used, and here in this study, they used iron oxide nanoparticles. And what they found is the iron oxide nanoparticles go basically everywhere in the tumor 
except where that, I mean, everywhere in the lymph node except where the tumor is. And so here you can see this dark signal is owing to the iron oxide nanoparticles. Then as the tumor develops, you get less and less dark signal. The downside here is, again, that it's expensive and time-consuming, and it also has negative contrast. So if you don't see a signal somewhere, you don't know necessarily if it's because the nanoparticles didn't get there because there's a tumor or because of some other possibly physiological reason. Ultrasound has also been applied. Um, in this case, they're typically looking at blood flow, either at the periphery or inside the lymph node. And it's nice because it's non-ionizing real time. Uh, the downside is that it's only measuring indirect indicators of metastasis. So it's only looking at blood flow, not directly looking at the, the cancer cells themselves. And so this leads to relatively poor sensitivity and specificity. Thus, it has not been adopted in a widespread manner. More recently, photoacoustic imaging is a new modality that has been used to target this application. And I'll go into photoacoustic imaging, what it is, in, in a little bit. Um, but here, what we're able to see is blood vessels, and more importantly, if you inject a dye or other kind of contrast agent, then you can start seeing it accumulate in the lymph node. So here you can see some gold nanoparticles that accumulate in a lymph node after 20 minutes. Um, here's another type of gold nanoparticle, uh, and then the background blood vessels. And then this is one that we did where we injected uh, gold nanoplates. And here you can see the feeding lymphatic vessel with the arrow going into this lymph node. And these were all done in small animal models so far, although there have been some initial forays into the clinic with this type of approach. So what is photoacoustic imaging? Well, it's a hybrid modality that combines uh, optical and ultrasound imaging. In essence, you need three main things, a laser, a pulse laser, a typical ultrasound transducer, and some sort of photoabsorber. That's something that will absorb the light inside the body. Endogenous absorbers are things like melanin or hemoglobin, and then exogenous absorbers could be a dye or a nanoparticle. So it starts with a pulse of energy, this pulse of laser light. And this laser light has energy per unit area F, or fluence. And then this photoabsorber will absorb this light and convert it to heat. This is done through this optical absorption coefficient, mu A, and that heat causes the tissue to expand. So the tissue rapidly expands, and this increases the pressure in the area around the photoabsorber. And this pressure then propagates out to the surface of the tissue, and we can detect that with a clinical ultrasound transducer. So you do light in and sound out. It's a, it's a, a good analogy is lightning and thunder. So why would you even care about doing this? Well you get a unique combination of features with photoacoustic imaging. First, contrast is derived from the, the variations in optical absorption in the tissue. And so things that absorb strongly in the tissue, such as blood vessels or melanin, will show up as bright signals in your image. But second, and this is critical, resolution depends on your ultrasound now. If you're doing purely optics and you start transmitting light into tissue, it quickly scatters and becomes diffuse, and you lose resolution relatively quickly. However, ultrasound resolution is preserved even centimeters deep in tissue. So we're able to keep submillimeter resolution with optical contrast deeper in tissue. And another additional benefit is because we're using ultrasound to receive our signals, it's, we can automatically and for no extra cost acquire an ultrasound image 
and co-register the two images together so we can get multiple sources of information using one system. One interesting thing is that the optical absorption coefficient where the contrast comes from varies as a function of wavelength or color of light. So here's a typical spectrum of everything in the body that absorbs light. You have blood in blue and red, or hemoglobin in blue and red, whether oxygenated or deoxygenated. And then on the bottom here is wavelength of light. Uh, melanin generally decreases, and then lipid and water uh, have these various peaks. Then they increase throughout this red to near-infrared region. And we can also create contrast agents. These, for example, are silver nanoparticles. And by changing the chemistry, we can change their size and shape, which then changes where they absorb in the whole spectrum. And so we can tune these to be anywhere in the same region. And so we can, the general idea is then you can acquire multiple different colors of light, multiple images from using multiple colors of light, and then spectrally unmix the different components that were there. So some things you could do with this is acquire two different colors, for example, and then figure out how much oxygen was in the blood in a certain pixel. This is very similar to the, the method that's used for a pulse oximeter. Now, there are several different systems making their way into the clinic right now for photoacoustic imaging. Um, one class of system is essentially a breast tomography system, in which case it's a bowl transducer with light delivery and then ultrasound transducer shaped in a bowl shape. And the primary focus here is for characterizing primary breast cancer tumors. Uh, another group has created a planar model where essentially it is much more analogous to a mammogram where we sh shoot light from one side and detect it with ultrasound on the other. Um, we're more, fo more focused on developing a handheld scanner, in which case we take a handheld ultrasound scanner and augment it with light delivery. Uh, here's another type of technology that's similar where the light comes from the middle and this is more of a cup type trans ultrasound transducer. And then other groups are looking into uh, creating endoscopes or even intravascular catheters in order to do imaging from within the body. So in general, how do we see photoacoustic imaging making it into the clinic? Well, I, I believe that it boils down to three main technologies that are the most promising. These are the intravascular and endoscopic, and those have a lot of, for example, the intravascular has great application to imaging of uh, cardiovascular disease. Breast tomography also looks very promising, and there's been some, quite a few pilot studies using that type of technology, and then also handheld scanners, which we're focused on. But at the same time, there's a variety of barriers that we as engineers and the clinicians we work with have to overcome. First, we have to make sure that we're measuring something that's relevant to a clinical uh, application, disease, or, or therapy. And so that's something that we have to keep in mind at all times. Um, another is real-time imaging. One of the powers of ultrasound is it's real-time. And so if we can keep this real-time, it makes it a lot more usable to, uh, in terms of contrasting it with the other alternatives that are out there. Um, quantification is a very... Uh, big problem, not only in, in photoacoustic imaging, but in all imaging in general, but it, it'd be a good thing to shoot for. Um, imaging depth is, is an issue, so we are still limited to two to three centimeters likely in the clinic because of how deep we can actually deliver this light. And then adoption by physicians. This won't go anywhere unless we can convince physicians that it's a, re it's a reliable tool that will give them useful information in making diagnostic decisions. So we believe once we get to clinical success, then we can start 
expanding to other types of applications. So this include molecular imaging to, to more su better support uh, personalized medicine, therapy monitoring, so monitoring things such as radiation therapy or neoadjuvant chemotherapy, and then finally addressing new disease sites that, that we haven't addressed yet. But these also come with additional uh, types of barriers, such as contrast regulatory approval, which in the case of molecular imaging is, is no simple barrier. So that's more of a long-term thing that will be coming down the pipeline. And then other technical issues, such as accurate spectral and mixing to clearly identify where the contrast agent is. So bringing this back to lymph node imaging, we have a mouse model that we've been using in which we use FADU cells that are injected into the tongue of mice. And these are bioluminescent FADU cells. And they metastasize to the cervical lymph nodes on the neck of the mouse. And we collect ultrasound and photoacoustic images only of the lymph nodes, not of the primary tumor in this case. And what we do is we capture these images using different wavelengths of light. And so for each individual slice, we get an ultrasound image and a set of photoacoustic images. Then we can take these photoacoustic images and do spectral unmixing to get a measurement of the blood oxygenation in the tissue. Here we're assuming that the predominant absorber in the tissue is just strictly hemoglobin. And we calculate the blood oxygenation through this simple linear relationship. Now what we found is that at very early stages of metastases, we start seeing changes in the blood oxygenation in the lymph nodes. So up here is a normal mouse. And then the way we saw the progression in this mouse model is first it would metastasize to the lymphatic vessels that feed into the lymph node. And then we start getting small metastases at the periphery of the lymph node that get larger and larger. And once they got to, in this case, about 200 micrometers in diameter, we started seeing a drop in oxygen saturation throughout the entire lymph node. And so this might prove to be an important indicator for uh, early progression of the disease beyond the primary tumor. Uh, it was statistically significant, so if we took healthy lymph nodes versus metastatic lymph nodes, we noticed a significantly decreased SO2 value or blood oxygenation value, and it was related to the size of the metastasis. So here the blue line is the average of healthy lymph nodes with the standard error and the dashed lines above and below it, and you can see that as the, as the metastasis volume increases, we get a decrease overall in the blood oxygenation through that lymph node. And one small point of reference is this largest one that we're looking at is about 100 times smaller than what is clinically detectable in PET imaging, although I'm really comparing apples to oranges here because we're looking in small animals versus in human tumors. But this is still very promising that we might have a very sensitive indicator for early metastatic involvement of these lymph nodes. And if we try to use this as a classifier, we get pretty good results. Our numbers are still pretty small at this point. And we're currently looking at combining our information, our photoacoustic information, with other indicators. Because we're getting ultrasound, we can start looking at Doppler and um, other things such as stiffness of the tissue using shear wave elastography. And so we can start combining this with multiple acquisitions that we could all do, that we could do the entire acquisition in real time and hopefully improve this, this as a classifier. And then the end goal will be to screen lymph nodes prior to the sentinel lymph node bi biopsy and decide if you know, maybe a wait and see approach might be better suited instead of going straight for the surgery.
And so right now we're in the process of finishing building our clinical system. We're in the final stages of this. It's almost entirely assembled and the programming is almost there. And we're currently working with uh, Dr. DeFlorio Alexander and uh, Richard Barth to take this and perform a pilot imaging study on breast cancer patients. Um, the goal will be to take those who come back for a follow-up ultrasound after a primary tumor has detected and then in addition to the ultrasound also perform photoacoustic imaging and start seeing if we can see the same correlation between blood oxygenation and, uh, and metastatic state of these lymph nodes. Now it comes with it a couple of depths or a couple of challenges. One is the, the imaging depth. So we're really restricted by our ability to deliver light and tissue. Um, some other uh, researchers have reported up to five centimeter imaging depth, but I think that is really too optimistic for most clinical applications. And so I, reasonably, I think that we can get down to two or three centimeters. Um, also, another issue is that as you start transmitting light into tissue, different colors behave differently just because of the different spectral profiles of the tissue. And so deep in tissue, it's hard to tell for sure what the blood oxygenation actually is quantitatively. And so there's definitely more work to be done on the engineering side of things to correct for errors in that, uh, in that approximation. And then clinical acceptance is gonna be the big thing once we start getting some initial results. And our main goal here is to piggyback the photoacoustic on top of the ultrasound and really just treat it as an additional feature much like Doppler already is. So that way we can just turn on photoacoustic mode and start looking at blood oxygenation, just like you would turn on Doppler mode to look at uh, blood flow. So that brings us back to here. And so assuming we get to this clinical success, we have other projects in the pipeline that are more on the preclinical side of things that we're, we're also currently working on. Uh, one is molecular imaging. And during my time at the University of Texas, I helped to develop these molecularly activated plasmonic nanosensors. These are gold nanoparticles. They're about 40 nanometers in diameter, and they're targeted with anti-EGFR antibodies. And these act as targeted contrast agents for photoacoustic imaging. Uh, gold nanoparticles are wonderful for photoacoustic imaging because they exhibit something called a surface plasmon resonance. And that essentially means that they can absorb orders of magnitude more light than a dye can. And so this, this single nanoparticle can generate a very strong photoacoustic signal. But we are particularly interested in this type of nanoparticle. These are uh, spherical nanoparticles, and typically gold spheres absorb green light. But if you take them and target them to a cancer cell, so shown here are ones that are targeted EGFR, the cancer cell will... Uh, They'll, they'll undergo receptor-mediated endocytosis, and these particles will aggregate inside of endosomes. And once you get multiple particles in close proximity, their effective shape changes. And what the end result is, is that this changes the peak of their surface plasmon resonance. So instead of absorbing green light, now they absorb red light. And so this is a nice little switch indicator that we can use to determine whether or not they've interacted with the cancer cells. So here you can see spectra of just the intact uh, nanoparticles not in the cancer cells versus after they've been uh, taken up. Now again, we collected the same type of data, collected uh, uh, an entire spectrum of a 2D slice in this case, or I guess a 3D slice. And then if you look at each pixel, you can see that there's clear, clearly different correlations 
clearly different spectra of the, the signal inside there. And so we, we can spot things like oxygenated hemoglobin, deoxygenated hemoglobin, and then here are our nanoparticles that we're eventually looking for. Um, so we do some spectral unmixing, and you can see essentially some raw images here. So this is a short wavelength, and this is a long wavelength of the same place. So you can see the features completely change depending on which, uh, which color of light you're using. But then if you do your spectral unmixing and look at it over time, then you can start seeing these features pop out. So here yellow corresponds to the, the activated nanoparticle. We can't actually see the dispersed nanoparticle in this case, the, the inactivated nanoparticle, simply because we're not imaging using green light. And so we only see it after it's interacted with cancer cells. And then here in the background, we can see some vasculature in the region. So what we found is we had three different groups. Uh, we had EGFR-targeted nanoparticles. Uh, we had RG16 nanoparticles. So RG16 is just an antibody to uh, rat IG, or rabbit IgG, so it should really not react with anything in this animal or with the human cancer cells. And then finally, we have normal mice as, an, as another control. And we just noticed a significantly higher presence of signal in the lymph nodes of the metastatic mice. And if we look at this in three dimensions, we can see that this signal is pretty much always restricted to the edge of the lymph node, which is consistent with what we saw in the histology as well. And looking at it more quantitatively, when we average that uh, nanoparticle signal throughout the lymph nodes, we notice a significantly higher uh, signal inside the metastatic lymph nodes versus either of the two controls. And this leads to I think really good uh, specificity and sensitivity, although again, these are still relatively low animal numbers. We're dealing with roughly 30 animals or so in this study. And so this could definitely use some more, some more work in that area. Uh, one interesting thing is that this all happens on the order of a couple hours. So here, this is just two hours of the same frame going down. And we can see that all the features in both sides, so in this case, the lymph node on the right is metastatic and the one on the left is not. And what we see is that the features, all the blood stays relatively the same consistently across the two hours, and yet we see a steady increase of signal just in the one focal point of that lymph node, which, which we believe is due to aggregation of the nanoparticles in a micrometastasis there. Where are you injecting these? These are injected peritumally in the tongue, so we're doing a submucosal uh, tongue injection in this case. No, not intravenous. Um, we, we haven't looked into intravenous delivery to the lymphatics. Uh, we decided to just follow the, the surgical protocol as closely as possible, just to ensure better delivery. And if we look at histology, we do see, in fact, that our tumors are overexpressing EGFR in all cases. And when we compare with bioluminescence, we can see a good correlation between the photoacoustic signal and the bioluminescence signal as far as where it is on the mouse. This is roughly the same imaging plane. Um, but one interesting thing here is that we saw no, bioluminesc new, no bioluminescence signal through the skin, and then we had to integrate this over a couple minutes at least in order to get, even get this small signal here. So, it's a very weak signal in bioluminescence, and we could see it pretty bright using our technique with the golden nanoparticle. So it seems to be very sensitive for detecting these molecular signatures.
And then finally, we looked at the spectrum of the excised tissue se sections, and then we did see, in fact, that we saw the plasmon shift of the nanoparticles in the tumors. So we, we saw the shift of the, in the spectrum, indicating that not only were the particles there, but they had also aggregated, most likely, in the endosomes. And so this looks to us to be a very uh, promising way to, to detect small pockets of cancer cells. Now, it's not a whole body imaging technique, and so it, you really have to be, it's going to be limited in where you can actually perform this type of imaging, and lymph node imaging is a good application for it. But it does require the use of gold nanoparticles, and the pathway to gold nanoparticles in the clinic, is, it's, it's a long road ahead of it, especially for diagnostics. So there are currently clinical trials using gold nanoparticles for things like photothermal therapy, where an external laser source is used to heat a tumor in order to treat it. But for strictly diagnostics, it, it's a much longer road. And so that's, that's kind of why this is later on in the pipeline after we establish a foothold of photoacoustics in the clinic. Um, and so that's pretty much where we stand in our lab with photoacoustic imaging. I'm going to switch tracks a little bit now and start talking more about our work focused on ultrasound imaging, although it still does incorporate light and nanotechnology. And at the core of this research is a, an entirely different type of nanoparticle. We call them perfluorocarbon nanodroplets. Um, typically for ultrasound imaging, the contrast agent is a gas microbubble. And so it's a microbubble, one to two microns in size that has a gas core, typically a perfluorocarbon core, and then they, uh, researchers have also added some sort of targeting agents to that as well. And they're used for vascular imaging. You can look at perfusion of the vasculature, or you can look at endothelial, endothelial markers such as VEGF or some other marker like that. Um, but what we've done is we've shrunk the same general concept down to nano-sized. And in doing so, the core, we've gone from a gas core to a liquid core. A liquid core you can't see within ultrasound. Basically, it has the same acoustic impedance as the background. But we've also looked at encapsulating multiple things, like a therapeutic or a near-infrared dye. And then we can also target these two, two molecules of interest. So in order to actually use these as a contrast agent, we need to do something else to them. And this is where the activation comes in. If we apply a laser pulse, the dye inside these nanoparticles will absorb the light heat up, and actually cause them to vaporize, at which point they go from their nano size, about 200 nanometers, they grow five-fold in diameter, and so now they're about a micron microbubble. And now you can see this microbubble in ultrasound. And so here's some confocal images of some of the, some larger nanodroplets. These are with ICG dye inside, so you can see it in the core, and then after you vaporize it, you can see it in the surrounding here, and the particles get larger. And here's just a fluorescent or a dark field image of the video of our nanoparticles, and we applied a laser, and you can see them basically expand and coalesce in real time there. So if you look at an ultrasound image of these particles, essentially before you don't get much contrast, that's likely just gas in our imaging phantom that we have here. But then after you apply a laser, you get a much stronger ultrasound signal. So it gives you activatable ultrasound contrast. And interestingly, we can actually get single particle sensitivity. So in any kind of 
um, molecular imaging technique, as soon as you can get to single particle sensitivity, that brings with a lot of different benefits. So here's before and then after we start seeing individual particles that have vaporized into microbubbles. And here's just one more example. Uh, Katie Wilson in my old lab, she scanned a laser, and you can see you can do point-by-point -point activation of these microbubbles by moving the laser throughout the field. And since we are at the University of Texas, she made a UT right there. <laughs> so the, the key takeaway here is that the nano droplets are small. Um, that means that we can start trying to get them places that microbubbles can't go. Microbubbles are large, and they're restricted to the vasculature. Nano droplets are nano-sized, and we're hoping that we can start delivering these, for example, through the leaky vasculature of tumors in order to tar target other markers that might not be uh, endovascular markers. They also have the added benefit of being externally triggered, so we have a little bit more control over them. And this also means that their half-life is improved because they have the nano size and we can coat the surface to make them last even longer. Um, and what's also important is that we've made these using entirely clinically approved materials. So this gets away from the, one of the issues with the gold contrast agents that I had mentioned earlier. So now we're using things like indocyanine green dye, lipid shells, uh, polyethylene glycol, and then the same, the same class of perfluorocarbon core that you would have in microbubbles. In general, in our lab, we're doing a lot of different things with these nanoparticles. We're looking at optimizing how we make them and how we formulate them to incorporate therapeutics, among other things. Uh, we're developing new imaging algorithms that basically harness the unique aspects. And then we're looking at applying them to a variety of preclinical and clinical applications. I'll go through a few of them here. Um, this first one is imaging the, the kinetics. <coughs> so one distinction I didn't make yet is that we've looked at two different classes of perfluorocarbons. One is perfluoropentane, which has a low boiling point around room temperature, and the other is perfluorohexane, which has a much higher boiling point above body temperature. And so what happens is if you vaporize the perfluoropentane particles, then they become a gas and they want to stay as a gas because they're, they're now high, they're higher than the temperature of the, of the surrounding. And the only reason why they stayed in the liquid in the first place was because of that stabilizing shell and their small size. But the perfluorohexane particles are always below the vaporization temperature. So you, you vaporize them and you get this peak in the ultrasound signal and then a little while later, we've noticed this on tens to hundreds of man, milliseconds, they recondense back down to their, their original droplet state. And we can actually do this repeatedly. We can vaporize the same particle hundreds of times without it losing its contents and still giving us adequate contrast. And so here's an example where we have a bunch of them. We apply a laser. The laser spot was right here. And we get vaporization. And then they end up recondensing over time. And then you can see the same thing with optical microscopy or with single particles here. And what we looked at is, well, can we harness these unique dynamics to get a really high contrast ultrasound image and localize where they are? And so what we did is we took basically a video, an ultrasound video with very high frame rate and looked over time as we were applying laser pulses. And so here in blue, you can see the ultrasound signal jumps up and down with each laser pulse. 
And then if you look at a background pixel where there's no nano droplets, you can see it's relatively steady. And so we took this general trace for each pixel and took its autocorrelation. The reason why we did that, or I guess first we took the difference between successive images to really highlight those vaporization pulses. Then we took the autocorrelation because the laser pulsing is a very periodic signal and the autocorrelation function really highlights uh, periodic signals. And then at the end result, with displaying it over the background ultrasound, we get a very high contrast map of the nano droplets. And this helps suppress all the random background tissue that you might have, which is an issue with any type of contrast enhanced ultrasound imaging. And so we, we again applied this to the same mouse model. This is a tumor-free mouse, and this is a lymph node right here. And this is two B-mode ultrasound images before and after vaporization. And you'd be hard-pressed to see any difference there. Um, we strained our eyes looking, and basically it's, it's very hard to see the blinking in real time. But when you apply this processing, then the nano droplet location really starts uh, sticking out. And we can, very, with very high contrast, start distinguishing them from the back, background, just simply because of the very nonlinear process that's happening here. And right now, we're making inroads into actually making these molecularly targeted. And one of our end goals is to target things like HER2 or EGFR in order to acquire ultra, uh, molecular ultrasound images and help better characterize tumors. Now, beyond simply improving contrast of imaging, one thing we noticed is we can take some inspiration from other imaging modalities and perhaps play some tricks and get improve our resolution. So we're, we're now pursuing super-resolution ultrasound imaging. And here's a video of the droplets. This is really slow-mo right here, recondensing over time. And what you'll notice if you look at it is that they tend to basically turn off one at a time. You see a single spot disappear and then another single spot disappear. Um, I think it'll play through again. So here you can basically see single spots disappear over time. And this gave us an idea that we drew inspiration from uh, optical microscopy. And so here storm or palm imaging all harness the same kind of effect. If you can turn individual particles or fluorophores on and off, then you can start pinpointing their location and identifying where they are to much better than your resolution of your imaging system. And so we're doing the same thing here. We essentially vaporize them and then start acquiring very, acquiring very high frequency ultrasound images, so on the order of a kilohertz. And we wait for them to all recondense. Then you take the difference between two successive frames, and if a single particle recondense between those frames, you get the pixel values around that particle. And you can fit the point spread function of the imaging system to this. And then what you do is you say, well, let's take the peak of that fit and say that's the precise location of that particle. And then you repeat this over and over again until your points fill in. And so here's the same video on top, but now here's the difference between successive frames on the bottom. And every now and then you'll see a bright point pop up. And then we put a little dot right there just saying that's exactly where that micro bubble was. And so this is just a single laser pulse here. We did one laser pulse, we're waiting for them to recondense, and then you can repeat this for multiple laser pulses. And in order to assess how good of a job we were doing, we did a very low concentration of these, so we're looking at individual particles now. So here you can see some bright spots, 
and then some red dots where we localize them to. Not all of those particles are currently vaporized, so you have red dots elsewhere. But if you zoom in on one, this white blur right here is essentially the, the diffraction-limited resolution of your imaging system. And then these, this cloud of red points are all the different places we localize that to. So we're doing much better as far as isolating where it is. And if we repeat this for several microbubbles, we saw that we were roughly between 10 and 15 micrometers in resolution in our precision of localizing these, which is about an order of magnitude improvement over the, the resolution of the imaging system itself. Uh, we did this in a mouse brain. Here the skull has been removed in this area, and we're performing ultrasound imaging. And if we apply super-resolution processing to it, we start seeing these features in here. Here all the particles are still in the vasculature, most likely. And uh, we start seeing some vascular-like features. This is just a single 2D slice, so we don't see any of the nice connected 3D vasculature that we might hope. But if we zoom in on some of the smaller points where we got a significant number of dots, then we see our resolution in vivo is pretty similar to that in our, in our phantom studies. Um, so what we ultimately hope to do with this technology is incorporate it with our molecular imaging and start looking at molecular signatures at a very fine spatial scale. As you may know, uh, intratumor heterogeneity is looking more and more to play a large factor in disease response and recurrence. Um, there was one landmark study a few years ago in the New England Journal of Medicine where they found even within the same tumor, just millimeters apart, uh, there's significant genetic diversity in the tumor cells there. And so if there's diversity on that scale, we want to be able to image these kinds of expressions like HER2 that we're targeting on that scale as well. And hopefully that will help us gain a better understanding of how and why the, the disease recurs and is resistant to these types of targeted therapies. And then one final thing I want to touch on is work that we're doing with uh, Hal Schwartz's lab. And this is in targeting radiation therapy. Um, and so one thing that's uh, pretty well understood at this point is that oxygen plays a critical role in the success of radiation therapy. And so if you have uh, less hypoxic tumors, you end up having much better survival curves than if you have more hypoxic tumors. And this is simply because uh, the oxygen helps to uh, enhance the double-strand DNA damage that would occur when these free radicals are created through radiation therapy. And typically, in order to pursue these types of approaches uh, or in, harness this type of effect, people have looked at using a variety of different things, including hyperbaric oxygen chambers in order to increase the overall oxygenation in the blood, and then carbogen inhalation in order to also achieve the same effect. Um, but we're already using perfluorocarbon nanoparticles. And one interesting thing about perfluorocarbons is they're very good carriers of oxygen. So here is a mouse that is surviving just fine. They can survive for hours in a beaker of perfluorocarbon. And you can see it's underneath a fish swimming in water. Perfluorocarbon is actually heavier than water. Um, and so perfluorocarbons can carry, carry a vast amount of oxygen. And our general goal is to load these particles with oxygen, deliver them to the tumor, prior to radiation therapy, and then use a laser to trigger them and release that oxygen to the surroundings. And so far, we've de developed these in using uh, uh, Hal Schwartz's EPR spectroscopy system. We've been able to look at, we can load them into a small test tube, and basically, we still don't have very much oxygen in the surrounding. We apply the laser, and we get this large bolus release of oxygen into the surrounding. And 
it's nice because this is definitely within the therapeutic window. Obviously, this is a very high concentration inside a test tube, so there's various levels that we will be able to achieve in vivo. But we go all the way down from here, and this is essentially the, uh, um, the oxygen, the therapy enhancement ratio. So as you go up, that means the therapy is more effective. And so we're able to go from all the way up to this plateau, at least in this initial experiment. And so we're also excited about doing other things such as loading uh, different types of drugs in these particles. One route we're going down now is adding platinum-based therapies to this as well, since that's commonly given in combination with radiation therapy. And hopefully we can get a synergistic effect in the DNA damage and DNA fixation with these two therapies, all at the same point at the same time. Um, and so the overall goal is to use our imaging uh, to find hypoxic regions. So we can use photoacoustic imaging to look at the oxygenation, administer these particles, trigger their release, and then track their release using imaging, and then perform the radiation therapy. And then we will also want to perform follow-up imaging to see if we can look at early indicators of response, such as uh, oxygenation, tumor size, blood flow, those types of things. And so I, I hope you have convinced you that there's a lot of room to expand in the ultrasound area and that you know, these are just a few of the steps that we're doing to, to hopefully make it a more useful clinical tool in the long run. I'd like to thank all of the people in my lab and the collaborators and, of course, the funding sources, and I'd be happy to answer any questions you might have. Okay, nice and time. Time for some questions, Brad? I'm trying to envision what happens to in the nanoparticles, uh, and then you blow them up. Yeah. What is the surface? What, what is there? Is it a lipid bilayer? What is it? It's a lipid monolayer um, because we have a hydrophobic core and a hydrophilic water on the outside, um, and so. We're not exactly sure what happens. We were a little bit surprised that we were able to do this repeatedly over and over again. It, I bet that some small patches of lipids form on the shell. Obviously, the surface area increases drastically, so it can't still be completely covered. And then it naturally reforms once it goes back down. And, but is that when the release of what's inside Well, there's two classes. So if we're looking for release of something, then we're going for the one-time vaporization in which case whatever's in there has to at least be on the shell, more likely in the surroundings as well. Um, and so that's, that's exactly when the release would happen. Other questions? So have any hurdles like that ever been through FDA? Um, no, not, not like this. So. Obviously, gaseous microbubbles have been clinically approved. Um, but it's a single layer, monolayer of lipids. Yeah. yeah. It shouldn't be that. It wouldn't be that typical. The, I think the difficult thing to convince the FDA of is that you're doing no harm with the phase transition, the vaporization. Um, because it can lead to things like temporary sonoperation of the cells, so the membranes can temporarily open up. Um, people have opened up the blood-brain barrier with it, for example, which is another possible application of them, but also, you know, another safety consideration for the particles. We haven't noticed any kind of toxicity in small animals, but it is something to be aware of. 
Are the perfluorocarbons also, are they uh, certified? Are they FDA approved for fluorocarbons? Yeah, so we can purchase medical grade perfluorocarbons and, and use those. No. Is there a pH effect on, on the spectrum? The photoacoustic spectrum? Oh, of the blood? Or in the tissue? In the tissue. So um, the pH will change, most notably, the basically the SO2, the blood, blood oxygen saturation, with respect to the PO2, which is the more clinically relevant parameter. The PO2 is the partial pressure of oxygen in the area. So that's how much oxygen is actually there. And then your blood spectrum will change, and it depends on the, the pH, which will play a role there. So in the end, it will, we're ultimately getting an indirect measurement of the PO2, which is what is most, most relevant. Are there any um, mechanical impact on the photoacoustic when you apply stress and strain to change within the cell? Yeah, so you do generate pressure and stresses in that, in that region. Um, but essentially, the mechanical effects are much lower than the thermal effects as far as tissue damage is concerned, for example. Um, you're much more likely to burn the tissue than you are to disrupt it mechanically when you do a process like this. Is photoacoustic imaging affected at all by body fat content of the tissue that you're looking at? Um, for the most part in the spectral region we're looking at, uh, it, the absorption of lipids are, are really low. So it's minimal in that way. The biggest impact would be through optical scattering. So it'll cause the photons to go everywhere. And then you also have an increased distance to where you actually want to image. And so you'll, you essentially need better imaging depth. Yeah. Are there any kind of therapeutics you had in mind for including in the, in the droplets? So short term, we're focused mostly on oxygen and other types of chemotherapeutics, such as cisplatin. Um, we're also looking at, we're already targeting them with these antibody-based targeting molecules, so maybe look at the therapeutic effect of those on the surface. Um, Long-term, I'd really like to get into uh, more things like siRNA or shRNA and see if we can load those, because these seem like they'd be pretty good delivery mechanisms for those types of therapies. With the photoacoustic imaging, you're looking at these micrometastases. What happens to the big tumor? Is it very bright and can you discriminate the big tumor and small metastases that are near the tumor? Um, so there's several groups now, specifically in breast cancer, looking at the primary tumor. So if a tumor is spotted in a mammogram, for example, they'll have them follow up with photoacoustics in their studies. And what they're finding is that they can see very elevated blood content in the region of tumors, and then also the blood oxygenation is also lower in those tumors because of hypoxia. Um, so far, I haven't seen any description of regional metastases as far as being able to spot those. That comes down to the sensitivity of how small of of features that they can find with it. And so I, I don't have a good answer for you that for that. Other questions? Well, if not, uh, remarkable talk.
We've got lots of audience participation. It was great. Uh, Jeff's around. He's a great guy for collaborating. Uh, something stimulated you. I urge you to talk with him. And thank you very much. Thank you.